0: Well, good morning, LifePoint. Well, I want to be up front with you this morning because if all goes to plan, I hope that this will not be your typical Sunday morning sermon because as I studied our passage that we're going to look at this morning, I came up with a pretty traditional three-point sermon, okay? But as I stepped back from that and then I looked at the chapter that we're going to be in and that sermon, I was like, man, there's just so much that we're going to miss if we just stick to that format. So, I went ahead and crumpled it up and threw it in the trash can, electronically speaking. So what I want to do this morning, I hope we're going to have some fun, but what we're going to do is we're going to shift our objective a little bit this morning. This morning, our objective is I want us to experience the text. Experience the text. Not just stand back and look at principles and draw out those principles and incorporate them into our lives, but actually go on the ride with the characters to step into God's word, that same word that speaks across all eternity, the same word that can bring the dead to life and heal the lame and the broken. I want to take one step closer to that word this morning. Not just read it, not just hear it, but experience it. So if it's all right with you, I would like to just step out of the way and let the Bible do its work. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to present our text as a play in four different acts. And we're going to walk through those acts together as one of the characters, or as those characters. And then on the fourth act, we're going to then zoom out and be able to see that these principles are coming to the surface that we can incorporate into our lives. Okay, are you with me? So if you have your Bibles this morning, will you please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And as you're turning there, will you please pray with me? uh Lord God, we never want to approach your word casually or flippantly, but we want to value it as it is. It is the spoken word of God, and it has the power to change our lives. And so, Father, we pray that as we read your word, as we spend time in your word, that your word will sink into us and do its miraculous work of transformation. We pray that as we spend time in your word, that we will leave changed. We pray that this morning, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me go ahead and start with a short illustration. Let's imagine you're watching this on a movie screen. It's a dark, stormy night, and the camera is zooming in on a large, two-story Victorian house, and in the middle of that house is a little girl, home alone, helpless, defenseless. And in the wind and the rain, on the front porch, you hear a strange sound. Now, the girl gets up and goes to investigate said sound, okay? As she's on her way to the front door, kind of tentatively going there, she looks to her right into the kitchen, and there's a teapot that's just starting to whistle, just starting to boil. In the background, she could swear she hears violins playing high in half steps, dissonant tones going... She goes up to the front door... And she peers through, and what does she see? Ah, a bad guy, right? Now, what kind of movie are we in? Okay, so we're, we're in a horror movie. That's great. So why do you know that we're in a horror movie? Or how do you know that we're in a horror movie? Why is it that you could tell me the next 10 minutes of this movie without even having to see it? Why could you tell me that she's probably not going to run out the back door, but run up the stairs and lock herself into a room where there are no possible exits? Why could you tell me that later she will exit the house, but that she'll try to start her car, and lo and behold, it won't start? Okay? Why why do you know these things? Well, it's because you knew what clues to look for that told you what kind of story you were in, because we are trained to analyze our context, and from there, predict and synthesize our expectations, right? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk a lot about this thing called expectations. And so we're going to see this morning that God loves to mess with our expectations. Okay? And not just mess with them. He loves to bring them to the surface, make sure that they're fully formed, nice and pretty, and then turn them on their heads. Has that ever happened with any of us in this room? Have we ever had our life going in a certain direction and then God totally turn it 180? Or is that just me? Well, guess what? God loved doing that 2,500 years ago, and he loves doing it today. Hashtag God doesn't change, okay? He is a God that loves to show us that he is a God of the unexpected. But in order to totally blow up someone's expectations, you first have to set them up just right, okay? And that's what we're going to look at first. The first act in today's text is called Act 1, and I've titled it The Setup. Act 1, The Setup. Now, since we're going to be in 2 Kings 5, we're not going to get a whole lot of backstory, okay? So the author is going to expect that if you're in 2 Kings 5, you've read 2 Kings 1 through 4, okay? And since it's probably been a while since a lot of us have been in 2 Kings, let's go ahead and just take a quick crash course refresher, okay? So we'll start big picture and zoom in. Now, where are we in history? Well, we're in a divided kingdom in Israel, okay? So this is after David and Solomon and Jeroboam, Rehoboam. We're in a split kingdom, okay? In the, ten, in the north, we have the 10 northern tribes of Israel that we call Israel. Um, and then in the south, we have Judah, okay? These two, these two kingdoms of Israel are in a stage of deep rebellion, okay? In the north, Baal worship is basically institutionalized, And Judah is doing a little bit better at this point, but not by much. So this is a state of deep rebellion on Israel's part. Now, last week, Dane preached a great sermon from 1 Kings 19. That's when we saw Elijah, and then we had the Ahab-Jezebel conflict that was going on. Well, right now, we're basically one generation later. Elijah passed down the torch to Elisha, okay? And then Ahab-Jezebel, we have Joram on the throne, and Joram's their boy, and he's pretty much right in line with his parents, okay? Now, Elisha is is the prophet. And he's a prophet during a time, like I said, of deep rebellion. And so you can guess the kind of messages that God has for his people at this point in history. It's not all warm and fuzzy with flowers, okay? It's, you need to stop. You're in deep rebellion. Do not go down this path. And so the kings and the prophets are really not getting along at this point. There's literally bad blood between Israel's king and Israel's prophet. So that's our backdrop. And now God is going to drop a variable into this backdrop. He's gonna drop a non-Israelite, a Syrian general, and we're gonna see what happens. Okay, so first I want to take a look at verses 1 through 7 and see how these pieces are set up. And if you'll forgive me, we're going to kind of start and stop over the first few verses to make sure that we understand the elements that are going on. Okay, so this is First Kings, no, it's not First Kings, it's 2 Kings 5, starting in verse 1. says, Now Naaman, the commander of, Syria, of the king of Syria's army, was esteemed and respected by his master, for through him the Lord had given Syria military victories. But this great warrior had a skin disease. Raiding parties went out from Syria and took captive from the land of Israel a young girl who became a servant to Naaman's wife. Now, before we move on, there's just a couple of things that I want us to see. Because if we, as 21st century folk, are going to try to experience the text as the original audience, we have to try to be able to put ourselves in their shoes. And so right out of the gate, the first thing we need to understand is that there are shots being fired right now. Now, it's harder for us to see those shots because we're so far removed from an ancient audience, but to the ears of the Israelites, these first few verses came out swinging, okay? So let's look at how an original audience might have read this. Naaman, oh, an enemy general, so esteemed and respected. Isn't that special? Oh, look, he's a leper, too, That's wonderful. Unclean and pagan. (laughs) Oh, and look, as he goes around pillaging and plundering our defenseless borders, he manages to kidnap and enslave one of our precious little girls. (laughs) That's perfect. You like him already, right? You can hear the author doing this to his audience, but he doesn't stop there. He makes his readers become even more uncomfortable. You can almost hear him taunting his audience through the text. He's saying, yes, Naaman's great. And you want to know why? What does the text say? It says, because the Lord had given him victories. Victories over who, I wonder? Oh, it's over you. <laughs> and the people are like, wait, are you saying that the Lord is working against us? But we're like Israel. We're the, we're the chosen people. And he's like, wait, oh, I'm sorry. Does that not fit your theology? Okay, I'm just going to let you sit in that tension for a little bit, Okay. So this is the kind of things that are going on inside the minds of the early readers. This author and the audience are having a serious discussion. Now I want to take a look at the next verse. This is the little girl speaking, okay? Uh, Chapter 5, verse 3 says, She told her mistress, If only my master were in the presence of the prophet who is in Samaria, that's northern Israel, then he would cure him of his skin disease. This little girl is the domino that makes everything fall. Okay, she's the first pebble of an avalanche. And what is she doing? This little Israelite slave girl is looking out for the welfare of her Syrian masters. Then he would cure him of his skin disease. Now, here's a quick Bible trivia question. When in the history of Israel had God ever healed anyone of leprosy before this time? The answer? Never. Never. This had never been done by a prophet before. There is no precedent to expect that anything this girl was saying was true. That's why if I were a betting man, I would probably guess that this girl was somewhere around like 8 to 10 years old, and she said something maybe a little too confidently, a little too quickly, like, Oh yeah, my dad's strong. Yeah, he could probably lift, yeah, he could lift a whole truck, no problem. And then someone actually called her on it. It's like, oh, great. Hey, there's your dad. There's a truck. Oh, and there's a crowd ready to watch. Hey, everyone, let's go watch this person's dad lift a truck. And you're like, whoa, whoa uh, okay. Has that ever happened to any of us in here? But whatever she said, it struck a nerve with Naaman. And now he was off to the races. Let's continue reading. It says, Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Syria said, well, will Go. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 suits of clothes. This was a fortune. Now he brought a letter to the king of Israel, and it read, This is a letter of introduction for my servant Naaman, who I have sent to be cured of his skin disease. Have you ever said something like that to where you said something, and then someone took it to the bank, and things just got rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling until it was out of control? I think that's essentially what we have here. And I want to look and see how the king responds. Let's look at our next verse. 5-7 says, When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. Now, when he tears his clothes, that's that's like a, a really big symbol of I'm very distressed. We're probably all gonna die. Okay? So he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill or restore life? Why does he ask me to cure a man of his skin disease? Certainly you have to see that he is looking for an excuse to fight me. The king of Israel thought this was so ridiculous that it had to be a trick. A foreign military escort just entered his courts, and I'm sure fully armed and ready, with a smile on their faces, politely asking for a miracle. And the king got the point. He's like, you know, the king, you can hear in his words, he's like, wait. I'm not God, I'm just a godless, quasi-elected official. In his mind, this was all going to be going very, very badly. He's like, I'm going to have to offend this obviously great general. He's going to get offended and go back and tell his Syrian king, and then the Syrian king's going to get upset, and he's going to take their whole army, come into here, and then we're all going to die. That's what's going to happen. So that's how our story set up. Okay, that's our setup. But before we leave this opening act, I want us to see one more thing, the thread of expectation. Because as I said before, it's gonna run through this entire chapter and it's gonna tie everything together. And the thing that I want us to notice is that in this part, every character reveals parts of their expectations. Naaman expects that what the little girl said was true. The Syrian king expects that Naaman's healing can be bought. That's why he sent them with a fortune. He expects Israel's king to comply, and he expects Israel's king to just order his prophet to perform the healing. He obviously had no idea of the dynamics between prophets and kings at this time. And the king of Israel, he just suspected that everyone was going to die. Because the thought of God intervening or his prophet hadn't even crossed his mind. But we have a God that shatters expectations. And so that's why today's message is called Grace Unexpected. So now I want us to look at Act 2. Act 2, I have titled The Transfiguration. Okay, The Transfiguration. Let's go ahead and keep reading in verse 8. It says, when Elisha the prophet heard that the king had torn his clothes, he sent this message to the king. Why'd you tear your clothes? Send him to me so that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood in the doorway of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a a messenger who told him, go and wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be healed. And just so you know, in this text, there's not just one shot fired. There are several shots fired okay? Elisha has a go at the king first. He says, send them to me. That way, at least someone will know that there's a prophet in Israel. The implication is really clear, because obviously the king of Israel doesn't have a clue. And then Naaman comes, and Naaman comes with all of his horses and chariots and all the king's men. It sounds innocent enough, but I imagine this is a full-fledged Prince Ali processional. This is Syria's most decorated and venerated general And he's coming in, and they are dressed to impress, and they are armed to the teeth. Since they have carried a small fortune across the desert, no doubt that this entourage is an elite fighting force designed to protect the treasure and their most valuable general. And so the message is very clear. This guy is really important, and it's in everybody's best interest that this works out well for everyone. And then Elisha doesn't even show up. He sends a messenger. Now, in terms of social etiquette, Elisha's message is very clear. A prophet of God does not bow to you, and I don't come when I'm called. Now, to a high-ranking general, this is obviously a slap in the face, and so I want to see how he responds. Will you pick up with me in verse 11? Read with me in verse 11. It says, Naaman went away angry. He said, look, I thought for sure he would come out, stand there, invoke the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the area, and cure the skin disease. The rivers of Damascus, the Abana, the Parfar, Farpar are better than any of the waters of Israel. Couldn't I just wash in them and be healed? And so he turned around and went away angry. And his servants approached him and said to him, oh, master, if the prophet had told you to do some difficult task, you would have been willing to do it. It seems you should be happy that he simply said, wash and you'll be healed. So in this section, Naaman tips his hand. He reveals all the expectations that he had been hiding up until this point, and none of those expectations are being met. He expected Elisha to come out and either show deference or at least treat him as an equal. And he expected a big show for the healing. He wanted this hocus pocus and he's waving his hands over the area and calling down the name of the Lord. He wanted a big show and he also wanted this to be costly. Not just going to a little river and dunking seven times. In all three of these expectations, his pride was offended. If he was gonna experience healing, then man, he wanted to play a big part in it. But church, that's not how God's grace works. So church, let me say this. To receive grace, it is always by default an affront to our pride. Because in order to receive grace, we have to put ourselves under the one who is giving grace. In this case, it's God that is the giver of grace and Naaman is the recipient. Naaman's not riding shotgun. He's a recipient. And the same is true with us to receive our grace. We can't have it both ways. We're not riding shotgun. We have to drop our pride. And Naaman Naaman finally does this. Will you read the next verse with me? Verse 14 says, So he went down and dipped in the Jordan seven times, as the prophet had instructed. And his skin became as smooth as a young child's, and he was healed. That's a miracle right there. God healed a Syrian general. Now, even if the whole story stopped right there, Israel would still have to spend some serious time working out what just went on. But God's not done yet. Because this is the message that's woven throughout this chapter. It is the lifeblood and the heartbeat of this story. It's that our God shows his grace at unexpected times, in unexpected ways, to unexpected people. We have a God who shatters expectations And just in case we thought God was done, wait, there's more. The miracle continues in Act 3. Act 3, I have entitled, The Transformation. The Transformation. Let's pick up again in verse 15. Verse 15 says, He and his entire entourage returned to the prophet. Naaman came and stood before him and he said for sure I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel now please accept a gift from your servant this is amazing right look at his words I know for sure that there is no God in all of the earth except for Israel now I can imagine that Elisha at this point kind of broke a little bit inside you see because The king of Israel can't even bring himself to say that. He looks around at the mountaintops and sees idol, idol, altar, altar, idol. But at the same time, I'm sure he's just shaking his head of that God just made a worshiper out of a warlord. So let's continue. I want to continue and pick up in verse 16. Elisha replied, As certainly as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will take nothing from you. But Naaman insisted that he take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, if not, then please give your servant a load of dirt, enough for a pair of mules to carry, for your servant will never again offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to a god other than the Lord. And may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to worship, and he leans on my arm and I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha said to him, Go in peace. This man has not merely gone through a transfiguration, he went through a complete transformation. He is changed, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. Did you notice his language? What did he call himself for the rest of the time? Your servant your servant. your servant. That's a big change from where he was at the beginning. And he refers to himself as your servant the rest of the time. Now, I know some of the things inside this passage look a little weird at first. Like, why is Elisha drawing such a hard line on not accepting this gift of appreciation? And what's up with the dirt? Like, why is he wanting to carry all this dirt around? Well, if you'll let me sneak in a little principle, I think we can clear it up. Because while God is in the business of shattering expectations, one of the most important pillars to have in place and establish is this, is that God's grace cannot be bought. This is not a transaction. It's a relationship. When God relates to you or me or anyone else, he relates to us out of his grace. It is not because of our merit. God relates to us out of his grace because he wants to be gracious, not because he is obligated. God relates to us out of the pleasures of his grace. But what about the dirt? Like, I know that might look strange, but this dirt is really one of Naaman's most profound gestures. You see, it was a common belief in that day that a God's power was centered in their territory, in their region. So if you're in Israel, yeah, Yahweh is most powerful okay? And other gods don't have as much power. But if you go into Syria, well now it's Syria's gods that rule that land. And so your god's not going to have power over there or as much power. They're going to be weakened. And so what Naaman is trying to do is he is wanting to take the land, the power of God, and take that back into Syria. And church, I'm sure there is a whole series of sermons just in that gesture of taking God's power and land back with him into Syria. Okay? Now, what I want us to see here most clearly is the contrast, okay? Because it's beautiful. Because in Israel, among God's own people, there are altar after altar after altar to idols and foreign gods. But somewhere in the wilderness of Syria, there's a little Israelite girl and a family who has taken a vow to only worship the Lord. A beacon of worship Is lit in Syria be still and know that I am God for I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted among the earth and so now we come to the final act the final act which I've entitled the unexpected lesson now why do I call it an unexpected lesson Because everything looks really nice and tied up right now, okay? The plot has come to a close. You can put a bow on everyone. I mean, everything's happy, and we're just ready for the curtain to fall and the credits to roll, right? Nope. There's still one more act, and it takes aim directly at the audience. You see, as God is going around shattering expectations, we've been kind of sitting back from a safe vantage point. But now it's our turn. Let's read We're going to finish out this chapter. Start with me right before the start of verse 20. It says, When he had gone a short distance, Gehazi, the prophet Elisha's servant, thought, Look, my master didn't accept what the Syrian Naaman offered him. As certainly as the Lord lives, I will run after him and accept something from him. So Gehazi ran after Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and asked, Is everything all right? All right. Or literally in the Hebrew, do we have peace? And he answered, everything is fine. My master sent me with this message. Look, two servants of the prophets just arrived from the Ephraimite hill country. Will you please give them a talent of silver and two suits of clothes? And Naaman said, well, please accept two talents of silver. Uh, He insisted, and so he tied up two talents of silver in two bags along with two suits of clothes. And he gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them for Gehazi. And when he arrived at the hill, he took them from the servants and put them in the house. And then he sent them in on their way. But when he came and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, So where have you been, Gehazi? And he answered, Your servant hasn't, um, hasn't, hasn't, hasn't been, been anywhere. anywhere. Haven't been anywhere." And Elisha replied, I was there in spirit when a man turned and got down from his chariot to meet you. This is not the proper time to accept silver or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, cattle, and male and female servants. Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will afflict you and your descendants forever. And when Gehazi went out from his presence, his skin was as white as snow. And the curtain falls. Well, I just sort of ended on a downer, didn't it? I mean, like, why'd you ruin the ride? Okay, and so I wanted to literally have us ask the same questions. Why the hard left turn? Like, what is God trying to do by telling us this part of the story? What's the purpose? Now, it could be just another way of emphasizing that God's grace cannot be bought. I don't think that's it. I think it goes a lot lot deeper. I think it strikes at the heart of being close to God in all of your external surroundings, but inside you are far, far away. In other words, I think this section points to our need to seek true transformation. The transformation that only comes from God. Now, Gehazi is the apprentice of God's prophet. That is a highly coveted position. He has been witness to many miracles up until this point. In fact, just a few chapters ago, he got to see Elisha bring a boy back from the dead. Gehazi has been in the presence of greatness for a long time. He has seen God's miracles, just like Naaman. And yet one of them is transformed. The other one is not. He's just an imposter. Now, he can talk with the best of them, But on the inside, there's different gears that are turning. There has not been a transformation. And did you notice his language when he's like, as surely as the Lord lives, I will get something from him. Have you heard that phrase before? You should have. It was what Elijah said when he said the exact opposite. When he said, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will take nothing from you. What Gehazi has done is he has just adopted prophetic language and attached them to his own desires. Church, I hope that we can see the dangers here. How dangerous it is to clothe our desires and try to marry them to God's. And try to convince ourselves that this must all be God's desire. It is the ultimate form of self-deception. But there's another element at play here that I think hits us square between the eyes as we apply it to our lives, and it is this. Not only do we need to seek true transformation, we need to carry the name of the Lord well. You see, there's another reason that Elisha was so hard on Gehazi, and it wasn't just the fact that he embezzled and lied and got caught. Okay, Because at this time in Israel, there were all sorts of self-styled prophets all over Israel. And they would go through various courts and king's courts and basically tell them whatever they wanted to hear. And apparently this false form of prophecy was a very lucrative profession. You could get pretty rich off of it. But Elisha is no false prophet. He speaks for the Lord God and he doesn't give a rip about lining his pockets or telling someone what they want to hear. He is a prophet of God. And prophets don't profit. So that's what Elisha is saying. When he rhetorically asks, is now the time to accept clothes and servants and vineyards and all these things, he's referring to the false prophets. That's what they do. He says, no, by doing those sort of things, you look just like them. That's what I mean when I say carry the name of the Lord well. It means you act with integrity. The key word of integrity is integer. It means one. Okay, it means that you are the same through and through on the outside and on the inside. It means that you can't talk like him as certainly as the Lord lives and then act like them, money, 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 money. They don't go together. You conduct yourself with integrity where you are the same outside and in. That is the core meaning when we get to the 10 commandments when it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, most of us grew up thinking that it just means don't say GD right? Don't put God's name before a curse word, right? But the word take in Hebrew means, it's the word "nasa." It means to lift, to bear, to carry. It means do not carry the Lord's name for nothing. In other words, do not misrepresent God because you carry his name on your forehead. And that means if you represent him, you love what he loves, you hate what he hates, and you value what he values, You represent him and you carry, you Nassah, you bear his image. Gehazi intentionally misrepresented God to someone who desperately needed a right picture of grace. And that is no trifling matter. In some ways, when you read this chapter, once you get to that part where we find Gehazi, he ruins everything. So when you carry the name of the Lord, you carry it well. And church, we live in that same world. We live in Elisha and Gehazi's world. We live in a lost and broken world full of Naamans who desperately need to see the light of our great God. We need to carry his name well, not just on the outside, but carry him well on the inside. Because the world is watching you, your unbelieving friends are watching you, your children are watching you, and they can smell a fake a mile away. And we want to shine a clear picture of who our God is, the transformation that's going on inside of us, and what He offers to any and all who will come to Him in faith and believe in His name. Now, you might be coming in here this morning with tons of expectations. And maybe, like Naaman, those have turned into bitterness or anger or pride. But I want to tell you this morning that we have a God who shatters expectations. He blows them out of the water. When we come to him merely looking for a transfiguration, he says, no, I'm not gonna stop at a transfiguration. I'm gonna go a thousand miles farther and I'm going to totally redo you from the inside out. I will change your heart and give you a full-blown transformation. That is the God that we serve and worship. Will you pray with me? God, we wanna just... Take this time and dive deep into your word to see your grace the way it was applied to Naaman. To see the expectations that people had where the only person who had a good expectation, a true expectation of you was a little slave girl in Syria. She was the only one who had their stuff together, who had the audacity and the courage to have faith in her God. And not caring if you haven't done it before, but I know my God and I know his prophet and he would heal him of his skin disease. And God, as we turn the mirror on upon ourselves, there are so many ways that we are like Naaman. There are so many ways that we are like Naaman, not only with the skin disease and leprosy and things like that, but but inside the pride, the bitterness, the expectations and the anger. So God, we pray that you will Show us, show us your grace. Show us our Jordan River. We may drop our pride and come to you and experience your healing and experience your grace. We want to give you this time. Will you do your work in our hearts? Will you do your work through your word? Will you do your work through prayer? We look to you and we wait for you with great hope. expectations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.